The year was 1966. I was not yet born. Um, But a cinematic masterpiece was released in 1966, starring Adam West and Burt Ward, a little movie called Batman. If you've seen the 1966 Batman, congratulations, you are blessed indeed. If you have not seen the 1966 Batman, repent of your sins and go home this afternoon and watch it with your family. Um, You're going to see a brief little clip here of some of this um, cinematic magic, and it kind of sets the tone for, hopefully relieves some of the tone of what we're going to look at today. So let's hope this works. We're good with volume, John? I think so. Let's find out. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. Have ever been there? <laughs> I promise that has a point. Stay with me, okay? We, I've got an hour to develop that, so stay with me. This morning, and I did want to kind of um, put a little levity in, in this morning because this today is heavy. This today is hard. Um, very somber, very serious, very sad, uh, a little graphic truthfully, at a few points. Um, And we're dealing with the awfulness of sin this morning. And we're going to see that played out mainly, well, through two avenues, uh, the the chief priests and the elders that we've talked about over the last few weeks, and ultimately and mostly through a guy named Judas. And if you know the end of his story, it it is as bad as it can be. So, um, if you would please stand, we're going to read Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 to 10, which is our passage for today. And we do hold fast by the power of the Holy Spirit that these are the very words of God, not contrived by a man, not cleverly devised schemes to trick people into believing something that's not true, but the very words of God given so that we might know Him. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, 
and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Let's pray. Father, I ask that this morning, again, in and by the power of your Holy Spirit, who lives within us and dwells among us, God, that you would convict us of our sins, that we would know the damage that sin has done, can do, and will do if we don't find a place to get rid of it. Father, show us this morning what it means to be affected by sin, and how to best deal with that sin to the praise of your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Chapter 27, the penultimate chapter of this book of Matthew. Um, Hard to believe we've made it this far. (laughs) Figured God would strike us down by this point, but no, he's got plans. Chapter 27, verse 1, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Okay, so we had said last week uh, that all of that trial that we looked at last week before the high priest and the Sanhedrin, uh, that, that trial was illegal on many levels, including the fact that it happened at night. They weren't supposed to hold trials at night. Well, it's morning now. And when morning came, Matthew says, what had unfolded previously in that sham proceeding of a trial has to find a way now for the chief priests and the elders out into the open, out into the light of day, so to speak. So all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They had found an avenue where they could justify in their minds putting this man to death in their minds. He had uttered blasphemy, Caiaphas had said, in quoting the gist of Daniel's son of man prophecy. And after tearing robes and proclaiming Jesus as worthy of death, now they put their heads together to find a way to bring this to pass. Okay, we've got our ammunition, let's put it in the gun and let's shoot this thing. And note that phrasing, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Now, keep in mind who these people are. These are the religious and the legal leaders of the Jewish people. And they're mad with power and with anger, debating amongst themselves how to kill their Messiah. Sin is insanity. And surely they didn't see what they were doing that way, but that's exactly what they're doing. Their Messiah has come. The long-awaited one, the foretold one, the one the Scriptures proclaimed to them for 4,000 years. And they're taking counsel against Him to put Him to death. It's so shocking. It's so out of joint. It's so unbelievably backwards. And that's what sin does. We've said this a couple of times over the past few weeks, but sinning sinners have no choice but to kill Jesus. That's all they can do with him. They can't live peaceably with him. They can't just let him go his way. they got to kill him. So they take counsel amongst themselves against Jesus to put him to death. They just can't coexist with God. So they take counsel against Jesus. 
And we do the same thing, right? Sometimes for us, that counsel is from Google. Or maybe our unbelieving friends, or a YouTube influencer, or a social media platform. Maybe sometimes it comes from our own sinful, fallen hearts and minds. And we reach a conclusion that Jesus can't be who he said he was. And so, Jesus has to die. And again, I don't think we think that consciously, but that's the conclusion that we reach. And that's where this group of Jewish leaders is. This group of Jewish leaders. They cannot for a second let the thought that Jesus really may be God in the flesh touch their minds and light there for even a moment. No, he's a blasphemer. He's got to die. But there's a problem. Verse 2. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So they bound him, it says, this willing, cooperative, non-threatening rabbi from Nazareth who was healed a man who one of his disciples cut his ear off in all this process. This man, Jesus, is either tied with ropes or shackled with chains. And so man has won, right? We've bound Jesus. Well, okay then. (laughs) And they lead him away. They tell him where and when to go. They are the Lord now. And where do they lead him? Well, it turns out they don't have enough power to actually kill him themselves. They too, you see, are in chains, so to speak. Israel was under Roman occupation, remember? And that's what they all wanted the Messiah to do was to break the bonds of the Roman oppression. And Rome tells them what they can or can't do. And according to Rome, the Jews can't capitally judge anybody. They can't capitally punish anyone. We see this in John 18, 31. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. (laughs) These bloodthirsty, we're going to kill him, we're going to kill him. We can't put anybody to death. They say that to the Roman authorities because the Roman authorities have told them, You can't put anybody to death. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And I think that's just so funny. These high and mighty leaders of the Jewish people do not have the power to do what they want to do. And by the way, neither do we. These religious, and I do the air quotes on purpose there, these quote-unquote religious leaders have to appeal to the worldly powers to accomplish their evil purposes. And again, we see the same pattern in our day and time. I am amazed at the value that people in the church of Jesus Christ place on secular and worldly opinions of Jesus. We look to the world to affirm or maybe even deny the claims of Christ, whether it's in the name of quote-unquote science or critique, or permission, we long for some odd, strange, stupid reason, we long for the validation and approval of the world and its pundits, its people in places of power and prestige, to add weight or value to Christ and His Word. But these guys here today need the world to kill Jesus for them. And they surely know where to go for that. 
the religious leaders deliver Jesus over to Pilate, the governor. They think it's from one power structure to another in their minds. But as this all unfolds, we'll see who's really in power here, who's directing all this. And we're not going to spend any time on Pilate this morning. That's for next week, Lord willing. But this week we do have somebody to deal with primarily. So let's put a pen in this proceeding with Pilate. And let's look at verse 3. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Oh, yeah. We... We'd left Judas in our account for a little while. We haven't seen him or heard from him in a little while. Actually, the last time we saw him, he was leading the crowd to the place Jesus was praying in Gethsemane. And when last we saw Judas, he was kissing Jesus and calling him rabbi. And he was doing so in order to identify Jesus as the man to be seized by this angry mob sent by the chief priests and elders. And so now we see him again. So this verse starts with a time reference, then. Now I don't know how close Judas was following all of the prior proceedings. Was he there while Jesus was being questioned and mocked? Did he see that? Was he an outlier like John and Peter that we saw last week in the courtyard? Matthew doesn't tell us for sure. But after Jesus is led away to Pilate, then... When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, is the wording. Now we see that Judas knows that the council had chosen to have Jesus put to death. So he's seen that. He knows that somehow. And upon seeing this, what's it say he did? He changed his mind. When he saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. Uh (gasps) Uh-oh. Judas coming to his senses, right? Hold on a second. This needs to be looked at. This word changed his mind. I'm just not even going to try. I'll give it a shot. Met am elomahi. Translates as repent five times. Judas repented? Be careful. It is a care to one afterwards. It repents one To repent one's self. Now look at that. We use the word repent all the time in Christian circles, right? And the question is, did Judas repent here? Now I think it's interesting to note, in this definition it says to repent one's self. This is Judas regretting to himself what he has done to himself. Christian repentance, true biblical repentance, is repenting to whom? First and foremost, toward God. David says in his confessional psalm, and I can't remember if it's 51 or 32, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's where true biblical repentance begins. Judas began and ended in here, in here, in himself. So instead of changing the way I'm thinking to fit God's way of thinking, which is the Greek word metanoia, it means to change your mind. Instead of calling sin, sin, and fleeing from it or killing it, what Judas has done here is just in his own head saying, I wish I hadn't done this. This isn't what I wanted to happen. 
After Jesus is condemned to death, Judas isn't happy about what's happening. And this verse says that his internal dialogue leads him to the point that he, quote, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Judas has got a bomb, and he's got to get rid of it. So he tries the chief priests and the elders. And what does he unload on them? The money. I'll give them back the money. That'll fix all of this, right? They'll take the money back, stop all this and say, fine, you, we'll just take the money back and we'll make all this go away. That's what Judas is thinking. And we know that Judas likes money, right? To the point that he was stealing money out of the money bag that he carried for Jesus and the disciples. So he thought, I'll just drop this bomb right here at their feet. So while it may not be the right kind of repentance, there is something serious going on here. And he dumps the money at their feet. And he states the reasons for doing that in verse 4, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. So the plot thickens. Judas has repented in and to himself and is trying to assuage his shame by returning the money that he received from the chief priests and elders, the 30 pieces of silver, for handing Jesus over to them. And his reasoning is simple. Here's the bomb. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Now he knows Jesus is innocent. And he knows that Jesus doesn't deserve to die for what the council is handing him over for. Now when does this happen to Judas? When does he come to this conclusion? We don't really know. But something's going on. And, and if we remember and look back to the upper room, okay, before Judas left to go betray him, we see this in John 13, 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, remember the morsel that Jesus had dipped to identify who the betrayer would be, Satan entered into him, into Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now note that. Satan had literally entered into Judas. Now, I think it's safe to say that at this point today, what we're looking at in our passage today, that Satan's not in Judas anymore. Right? He's got other business. Satan's busy stirring other pots. He's done with Judas. So, without the direct satanic influence, Judas is sorry to himself and he sees Jesus' innocence. And you don't have to be a saint to know that Jesus doesn't deserve to die here. He hasn't done anything worthy of death. But listen to me, you want to know the effects of sin. It is so satanic and demonic to lead someone to sin, to tempt them, to hold it out there. And when they sin, when they take that bait, leave them on their own to deal with the consequences. That's how the devil works. You want this, you want this, you want this, you want this. Look at it, look at it, look at it, you want it. We take the bait and he's gone. And we're stuck with a hook in our mouth. He ain't there to help us. We just got to deal with the consequences ourselves. That's how the devil works, y'all. And that's exactly, I believe, I believe what he's done to Judas here. And the consequences for Judas here are a sense of guilt for having done something wrong. And he has done something wrong. He is guilty. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But Judas takes the bomb to the wrong place to try to get rid of it. 
He's not going to get rid of his guilt here because the chief priests and the elders say, what's that to us? See to it yourself. These chief priests, these elders had no feelings of shame or blame. We gave you the money to do what you did. You did it and we got what we wanted out of it and that's all that matters to us. We don't want your bomb. But you, what they said in reality is really pretty good advice, you see. It really wasn't anything to them. They couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't do anything about Judas's guilt. They couldn't clear his name because he had done what he had done. And he goes to the religious people, in his mind the religious people, who had helped, them, helped him accomplish this, and they said, what's it, what's it to us? And again, so many times we look to other people to try to either validate or liquidate our sin, and they can't do it. Now, we are to confess our faults one to another. Why? To keep us humble in front of each other. But there's not a person in this room that can absolve you of your sin. But we want people to validate us. We want people to pat us on the back. It's okay. We all struggle. I'm just being transparent here. Like that's going to fix your sin. Like that's going to take away the guilt and shame of your sin. It's not. We need to do that as a means to an end. And the end is, well, we'll see when we get there. What's it to us? See to it yourself. They couldn't do anything about that for Judas. And he should have seen to that himself, they said. But he was hoping they'd alleviate his suffering, that they'd fix things, that they'd make what he had done all right, undo it. But they couldn't. And they wouldn't. What was done was done. So where does that leave Judas? He's still carrying this bomb around. And it's as bad as it could possibly be. Verse 5. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Woof. You talk about awful. Judas takes his prize, his reward for his betrayal, his precious 30 pieces of silver. And it says he threw them down in the temple. And I think in doing so, he thought he was getting the bomb away. But guess what? His idea of making things right, I guess, was for the chief priests and the elders to take the money back. Like that would undo what's been done. But again, that ain't going to do it. So he throws their money down at them. And it ends up on the floor of the temple. But Judas is still carrying the bomb, y'all. And it says that he departed... Leaving there, and he went and hanged himself. And let that sit for just a second, because it's as bad as it sounds. It's worse than we can imagine. It's as bad as it can be. Overwhelmed with regret, carrying shame and blame, and knowing that he's guilty, and he couldn't handle it, so Judas ended his own life. He hanged himself. His mental, emotional, and spiritual state had eroded so much so quickly that he decided his life was not worth living. 
and he hanged himself. Now, we don't have any more details from Matthew, but Luke, in the book of Acts, gives us some details. And I don't have it up here. I didn't put it in there. My fault. Listen to this. Acts one eighteen. Now, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Now, you may feel squeamish about that, and you should. And I think it needs to be seen because listen to me. This is sin. This is the devastating effects of sin. Now, does everybody go out and hang themselves because they've sinned? No. But this is the epitome. This is the perfect picture of what the bomb of sin ultimately does to all of us if we can't find somewhere to get rid of it. Blows us up from the inside out. And this man's bowels gushed out. I'm not trying to be dramatic or melodramatic. I'm just reading the scripture. And God wants us to see the effects of sin. Bob read this morning from Ezekiel. If the watchman doesn't warn somebody that trouble's coming, trouble's going to come and the watchman's going to be held responsible. But if you warn them and they don't listen, they're responsible. Listen to me. We have to warn people of the dangers of sin. We cannot pat them on the back and tell them it's all right. We all struggle. Sin blows us up from the inside out. Sin kills us. And we need to see that and we need to feel that. Judas had been selfish. Judas had been greedy. Judas had been possessed by Satan himself after all those things. And now, left to himself and left to those sins, he can't handle it. It's too much for him. And he hangs himself and somehow falls from the noose and he busts open in his middle and his insides come out. All his bowels gushed out. Nothing cute, funny, or lighthearted about this. It's awful. It's horrific. It's terrible. And it should be. Really, this is the full final result of the fall of man. Sin, selfishness, betraying Jesus is ugly and destructive. And Judas's end of life is the very epitome of this. Betraying Jesus in any final way leads to death and ultimate destruction. And it's not pretty. I've heard people say, well, I'm just going to go to hell and party with all my buddies that are going to be there. There's a part of me that wants to say, I wish that was true. But it's not. Death, eternal suffering, destruction. Not destruction in a final sense that it goes away. Suffering for eternity, not apart from God, which is something we say a lot, but apart from the grace of God. God is very present in hell, pouring out wrath and judgment upon the rebels who chose to betray him. And it is grisly. 
And we'll look at this more in application, but we'll move on for now. So Judas has come to his end. Verse 6. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, "Uh It's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. Now these are really nice guys, aren't they? They take the silver, these 30 pieces of silver that they had given to Judas to have him betray Jesus, and they start to try to figure out what to do with it. Not a bomb to them. They don't care. It's just money. So they pick it up off the temple floor and they say amongst themselves, well, it's not lawful to put it in the treasury since it's blood money. Again, really nice bunch of fellas. They're so cold, so calculating, so indifferent to the sins that they are committing here. So rational and plain spoken. Very mathematical, very scientific here. Well, we can't really take this money as an offering. I mean, it was used to kill a guy. So then what? Verse 7. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. So they kick it around between them. They decided that they'd buy a field with it to bury strangers in. (laughs) Commentator Craig Bloomberg says this. The chief priests remain preoccupied with the letter of the law while oblivious to its spirit. They prove totally insensitive to Judas's desperate state of mind while still concerned with the finer points of their oral traditions about the use of his money. From their perspective, blood money refers to Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Again, they're looking at what he did, not at what they're doing. For Matthew, Bloomberg says, it will double as an allusion to Judas's death as well. The temple officials refuse to keep the money because it is ritually impure, so they buy a field for use as a cemetery for resident aliens. Unclean money buys an unclean place for unclean people. End of quote. These guys just get rid of the money pretty much and don't feel a bit of remorse about any of this. So their reaction is pretty much the opposite of Judas's. They just take a bomb and drop it somewhere else for somebody else to deal with. Judas was guilty, knew it, and couldn't deal with it. These guys were guilty and don't even realize it. Their consciences were dead. Operating on a regular basis, deciding what's best and most expedient for them, not caring at all about how that affected other people. We'll buy a field to bury people we don't know or care about. Or care about, sorry. And that pretty much sums them up. They don't know and they don't care. But the field actually kind of tells on them. Verse 8. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. That's curious, isn't it? Therefore, that means, therefore does... Since this, then that. So this field was bought with what was considered blood money. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Now, look, look I'm going to look back at Acts 1, and I still didn't put Acts. I don't know what, I'm, I've got an aversion to Acts 1. I didn't put it in here either. I want to look back at Acts 1. We had read verse 18 before, and I want to read Acts 1, 18 again, but I want to read a little further through verse 19. Acts 1, 18 and 19. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem 
so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now, that's the end of the biblical passage there, Acts 1, 18 and 19. And that's a little bit different from what Matthew says, it seems. Matthew says that the chief priests bought the field, and Luke, in Acts, says that this man, referring to Judas, seemed to imply that it points to Judas. Luke, in Acts, seems to imply that Judas bought the field. So who bought the field? It's not real hard to reconcile. I think it could just mean that all Judas got out of that 30 pieces of silver was the field, whether he knew it or not. He got nothing from it himself, but his money... And they would have said it was his money, the blood money. That his money was used to buy the field, although the priests were the ones who actually took part in that transaction. And I think this snippet from commentator J.B. Polehill was interesting here as well. Now, as I read this quote from this commentator, I think it brings together Matthew, Luke in Acts, and Peter. Because if you look at Acts 1, he... Peter is quoting this to describe how they're going to replace Judas after Judas was gone to be one of the twelve. Okay, So they're looking for the twelfth apostle in Acts 1, 18 and 19 and following. So listen, we've seen Matthew, we've read Luke. Now listen, watch this. this is a, I'm going to read the biblical quote and then the quote from commentator J.B. Polehill, which is a great name, J.B. Polehill. Quote, And becoming prone, he burst in the middle and all his entrails poured out. That's the literal translation. The NIV probably is right in interpreting the strange phrase becoming prone as fell headlong. The picture is that of a fall so severe as to open his body cavity and cause his inner organs to spill out. Now listen. In consequence of this gory death, the field became known by Jerusalem locals as Akeldama. For his non-Semitic readers, Luke translated the Aramaic word, that is, field of blood. Matthew gave a fuller account of Judas' death. Despite significant differences in detail, the main emphases are the same in the two accounts. The purchase of a field with Judas' blood money, the grisly death of the betrayer, the naming of the field, field of blood. Now, this is where he picks up with Peter. For Peter, the recollection of Judas' end must have been a grim reminder of his own denial of his Lord as he now sought to lead the assembly to fill the abandoned post. So as you read the account in the book of Acts and as Peter is recounting what happened to Judas, can you imagine what Peter was thinking and feeling as he recounted what had happened to Judas? Because who had done anything different than Judas? Peter done pretty much the same thing. He just didn't get any money for it. So this field of blood served as a constant reminder to the inhabitants of Jerusalem that this field was bought with blood money. Whether that blood was Judas's blood that was spilled and poured out or whether it was the blood of Jesus that was betrayed into the hands of the chief priests and the sinners. And so these chief priests, not chief priests, instead of chief priests and uh, Pharisees and leaders... They buy the field, and then it gets called the field of blood. And every time that they walked by that field, they would have been reminded of what they had done. And I don't think they cared a bit. But imagine being Peter and going, field of blood. Judas couldn't deal with the bomb that he was carrying, and I was carrying the same 
bomb. Keep that in mind. That's going to be important later on. And as of the writing of Matthew, that field was still called the field of blood. That's what it was commonly called. And the significance was surely felt by all those who knew the truth of how it was bought. And it being called the field of blood, if you can imagine this, had actually been foretold that it would happen. That's where we finish today in verses 9 and 10. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, Matthew writes, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So Matthew has, throughout the course of us being in Matthew, he has consistently referred back to the Old Testament and taken prophecies from the Old Testament as proof that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Messiah was pre-announced to be. Again, Judas, uh, Matthew's whole point in writing his gospel was to show Jesus as the Messiah, the King. And he uses the Old Testament time and time again to show that Jesus fits the bill of the prophecy. So here he says that all... All this about the field and the field of blood was announced by Jeremiah. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of whom, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, if you were to find the place in Jeremiah where that prophecy came from, you'd be hard-pressed to do so. There are similar sounding words in both Jeremiah 32 and Jeremiah 19 where fields are bought, shekels are mentioned, as are innocent blood and a potter in a potter's field. But Jeremiah didn't say what Matthew's quoting here. You can't find it. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, the Bible's wrong. (laughs) We know better, right? And we're not going to sweep it under the rug and just say, oh, well, we just believe it by faith. Now, let me show you something else. Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. Listen to this. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages, what? Thirty pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now that sounds a little bit more right in what we've seen here, right? That seems pretty close. But that's Zechariah. It's not Jeremiah. R.C. Sproul helps us here. He points out that any copies of the Old Testament that any first century Jew would have seen or known about would be on a what? A scroll. Okay? And the scrolls would be identified by either either the first book on the scroll or the most prominent book on that scroll. And it's very likely that Jeremiah and Zechariah would have been on one scroll. And what do you think they would have called that scroll? Jeremiah. Okay? It would be said to be coming from Jeremiah. Also, other commentators, Bloomberg, who I quoted before, Craig Bloomberg for one, show a tendency of the New Testament writers to combine thoughts from different books into one reference and then cite the more prominent name as well. So here, types and pictures from both Jeremiah and Zechariah are used to show the foretelling of this event and thus validate its prophetic importance. And that, in turn, continues to show God's superintending all of these events, all the way up to a random field being bought with blood money and used to bury unidentified people in. God told him it was going to happen. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, Matthew clarifies 
how all that applies to all of this. It's amazing. And that brings us to the end of our passage for the day. So we're going to look at application through three S's. And actually there's a bonus S after the three S's. These should be really, really easy to remember. Just keep in mind the order. Sinners, sins, and sin. Sinners, sins, and sin. First application point is sinners. Let me ask you a question. Who is a sinner? Every single one of us. From Adam and Eve to the last person to draw breath on the earth, every human being post-fall is a sinner. You, me, us, saved people, lost people, we're all sinners. Every single one of us. And if you are sitting here this morning saying, eh, I'm just, I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not Hitler. That's, for some reason, Hitler has become our judge as far as what really bad means. Hitler, I'm not Hitler. I've never killed anybody. I've never, best of my knowledge, I've, I've really tried to be nice to people. I've, I've tried to be kind and I've tried to do the best I could. Oh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've messed up here and there, but everybody does, right? Yeah, everybody does because we're all sinners. Every single one of us. And until you realize that you are a sinner, you're carrying a bomb around. And you can't get rid of it. This is Romans Road, right? What then? Are we Jews any better off, Paul asks, to his Gentile audience, to the Romans? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all... Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So why in the world would we structure our services around being seeker friendly? Sorry. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Whose lips? Our lips. Every single one of our lips. So application point number one is, you have to admit that you're a sinner. And maybe you've been in church all your life and you've never come to the conclusion, hey, wait a second, I'm a sinner. That was Janetta's testimony at her baptism. She'd done all the church things. She'd done all the, you know, grew up in church. Never realized that she was a sinner who needed forgiven for her sins. I mean, point you out there. But that made an impact on me. And all you kids that grew up in church, God have mercy on you. Praise God for it and God have mercy on you. Because maybe you don't realize, hey, wait a minute, I'm a sinner. All these people that I've looked at and said, oh, those are sinners, I'm one of them. You're never going to get rid of the bomb 
until you confess that you are a sinner. You say, well, I'm saved now. And you're still a sinner. Simel Eustus et peccator, right? At the same time, saint and sinner. And listen to me, saved person. If you're sitting here today and saying, this doesn't apply to me, you're wrong. You are a sinner. And that casts us at the grace and mercy of God, which is exactly where we need to be. Don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Application point number one, sinners, admit that you are a sinner. Don't look at somebody else. Don't poke your buddy beside you with your elbow. You need to admit you're a sinner. I need to admit that I'm a sinner. You need to admit that you're a sinner. And that admission needs to go much further than just recognizing it here. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Because, second application point, you as a sinner have committed sins. It's not enough to just say, yeah, I'm a sinner. You have to recognize the sins that you have committed, that you are committing, and that you are going to commit. And here's the simple statement here. It's not all right. Your sins are not all right. Your sins are a ticking bomb that you're carrying around with you. Unbeliever, believer, you've got to get rid of these sins. You've got to stop sinning. You say, does that mean that I can't ever sin anymore? You're going to sin again, I promise you're going to. But a constant, steady flow of confession of what your sins are is imperative if you're going to walk in fellowship with the Holy Spirit of God. Listen to me, believers specifically, God hates sins. He hates them. Now, praise God, because of the blood of Jesus, our sins have been taken care of. Jesus took the bomb. And He took it on Himself. And He paid the penalty for our sins. Plural. Every one of them. Past, present, and future. Believer, your sins are atoned for. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of His people. And we have to confess our sins to God and to one another. Unbeliever, what are you going to do with your sins? Are you going to try to figure that out yourself? Are you going to try to repent in here and just take care of it? Yeah, that was bad. I shouldn't have done that. I'll just throw, I'll, 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 I'll make restitution. That's what I'll do. That'll fix it. That'll take the guilt of my sins away. No, it won't. Once you admit that you're a sinner, you bring your sins to God. That's your only hope of being atoned for, of being saved, of receiving grace in place of wrath for your sins. Your sins put you under the wrath of God. Oh, they're not that bad. Yes, they are. They're a cancer that is eating you from the inside out. 
and eventually will be the end of you. So confess your sins, sinner and saint. And do that consistently, by the way, sinner and saint. Don't say I did that once and I'm, that's taken care of. Your sins are taken care of once for all, praise God. And I need to confess my sins regularly to God and to other people. Sinner, sins, and sin. Ultimately, as sinners who commit sins, our ultimate problem is what? It's sin. And Paul would say, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Every human being from Adam to the end will have sin in their flesh. And that's a problem because for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sinner, saint, the ongoing effects of the sin in your life have to be brought to the feet of Jesus. You know who can take that bomb? Jesus can take that bomb. Jesus did take that bomb. And again, as a believer, if you think you're past feeling the effects of sin in your life, you're not being honest with yourself. John talks about that in 1 John. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Unbeliever or believer, there is sin present in your life. And as sinners, and ultimately we are called to repentance of our sin. We change our mind about what sin truthfully is. Because here's the deal, especially as unbelievers, we really kind of like our sin. Makes us feel good. We don't want anybody else to know about it, but we kind of like it. That secret pleasure in the secret place that nobody else knows about. you got to change your mind about it. Judas was sorry he had done what he had done, but it went no further than that. He took his sin to the chief priests and elders, and they couldn't do anything with it. They didn't care about it. So we have got to repent of our sin, knowing that our sins are forgiven and that as we remain sinners, the ongoing effects of sin can be dealt with as we change our mind. Romans 12, be transformed then by the renewing of your mind. That's repentance. I will say that sin is sin. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I have got to be bringing my sins and my sin before the throne of God and getting rid of that bomb there. Nothing else, no one else will work. The devastating effects of sin, the fall that affects every single one of us so much that if left untended to, our ultimate end, left to our own, left to our sin, is total and catastrophic death. What do we do with it? 
We take our guilt because we are guilty. We take our shame and we bring it to Jesus. And so for every single person in this room this morning, listening at the sound of my voice, the question you have got to ask yourself this morning is, what are you going to do with your sin and your sins, you sinner? Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. Now you can dismiss your sins like the chief priests and the scribes, Or you can try to fix yourself or find your own solution like Judas. Neither outcome is good. Living oblivious to sin or trying to remedy it by natural means or explain it away by natural means, both lead to death and destruction. But what if, what if we took our sin to God and let Him deal with it? Because He did. Jesus' death on the cross was for our sins. And that cross is still there today to remind us of our need for help against the ongoing indwelling sin that dwells within us. So I said we had a fourth bonus S besides sinners' sins and sin. And what's that S? Salvation. Come back to Peter for a second. Imagine being Peter. And you read Matthew's gospel. And you read this account and realize what you were saved from. And we should do the same. I didn't betray Jesus by leading armed people to him to have him arrested by kissing him and calling him rabbi. I didn't do that. But my sins are the same thing. It's a denial and a betrayal of Jesus. And here, as Peter read this account, I just can't imagine how much it affected his heart and his mind and brought him to true repentance and appreciation for who Jesus is and what Jesus had done to forgive him for his sins, specifically those three denials that night. Salvation is bringing the bomb to Jesus and saying, please take this, I can't do anything with it. And you know what Jesus says? I can. Romans 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you... Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, please hear me say this, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Shame, blame, regret, guilt, bring them all to Jesus. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Confess with your mouth that he is your Lord. And he takes the bomb. He takes your sin, my sin, our sins. And leads us into triumphal victory. Not grisly destruction. Like what we saw in Judas today. Let's pray.
I will boast in the cross of my Redeemer. I will not trust in my efforts. I will not trust in my abilities to redeem myself. But my song will be about a Savior who took my sins, of sins forgiven, of conscience cleansed, of death defeated, and life without end. Father, may we rejoice in the salvation that you have purchased for us through the death of your Son. We are all carrying around with us sin that leads us to commit sins that point to the truth that we are all sinners. But you offer to us salvation free if we will bring these bombs to you. Let you diffuse them. Let you take them from us so that we might have eternal life and not eternal death. Father, I pray that you would speak life into dead places this morning. Pray that you would bring hope and healing and celebration into the lives of those who have trusted Jesus for their salvation. That they would see the power of the blood of Jesus over the sins of people. May we know salvation today and every day, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We just stand and receive a benediction. Now, now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. If you're a covenant member, please stay with us. If you want to hang out and talk a little.